The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to uh, the Friday discussion here at DSR when we talk about the intersection of technology and security. Sometimes we call it We Are All Going to Die Radio. Usually I am joined for this summit by John Wolfstall, my uh, co-host, but John is on assignment uh, and away, so I am going to be joined um, by two other uh, great guests. One, of course, our old friend, uh, David Sanger, who's White House and National Security Correspondent for the New York Times. How are you doing, David? Very good. Um, excellent. And uh, 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 someone new to our podcast, Karen Howe, who's an award-winning journalist covering artificial intelligence, currently uh, contributing to The Atlantic. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. So let me start with uh, what we thought would be the initial subject of this. Um, for a few weeks, we've been talking on our various podcasts about the upcoming uh, executive order from uh, the White House uh, on AI. Um, uh, David, you and I talked about it offline even. And um, lo and behold, uh, it appeared all, I think, 180 pages of it. Um uh, and it was a kind of a you know mulligatawny stew of a uh, an executive order um, uh, grabbing bits and pieces from recommendations from various commissions from various companies addressing various issues. Um, uh, some of the criticism of it was that uh, as a consequence, it was not super coherent. Uh, others felt it was a good start. What do you think, David? Um, I was in the department that it was a good start, but it certainly is long. Uh, I've been reading executive orders for some number of years. You must have. I won't a, say how many. You must have a great life. Will. That sounds right. like a great life to me. <laughs> um, and uh, this one, this one is big. Uh, it was written largely by Ben Buchanan, who's a uh, wonderfully talented um, AI specialist and cyber specialist who. Uh, has, has written some great books on the topic, and the White House was wise to bring him in to, to go do this. I think the most important thing to know about it is that it basically sets a marker that almost all artificial intelligence 
programs, but particularly generative AI, which we've been uh, all obsessed with for the past nine or 10 months, um, is a dual use item. That is to say, something that can have both military and civilian purposes. And it wants to lay that marker out early so that as they are developed, you build in the protections by design rather than do what we have done for the past 35 or 40 years in the world of cyber, which is to blithely turn out programs and then later on try to go um, put a mask of security over it, which never quite fits. So I think that's the first thing it accomplished. The second thing it accomplished, David, I think, was that it established that the government believes that it has rights to review um, certain programs before they come out. And this is sort of similar to what they did in the early nuclear age when, you know, people who were doing university research had visitors from the Atomic Energy Agency who told them that, you know, whatever it was they had just thought up was classified and um, they couldn't think about it anymore. Or if they did, they couldn't talk about it. Um, in this case, what they're saying is that if you are developing a, a generative AI or any kind of AI system, you have to red team it. That is to say, you have to go test it out to see whether or not it could be used to make a biological weapon or a nuclear weapon or any of a number of other things, and then report those results to the government. The problem with this is right now there is no standard about what a red teaming system would go look like. And therefore, we have no way of knowing whether or not somebody could still abuse it. And the other problem, of course, is that only applies to companies that are within the United States' jurisdiction. And this is software development. It can be done anywhere in the world. Yeah. So, Karen, before we get uh, drilled down, uh, what, what was your uh, overall take? This is great because I... I um... I actually have a little bit of a different view, so I'm glad we're spanning the spectrum here. I, I agree with David that it is a good start. I also felt like the document was very incoherent. Um, it sort of stapled together two very different documents um, and didn't really do much to harmonize them, one of them being sort of a policy paper that companies, including OpenAI and DeepMind, Google DeepMind, had sort of endorsed um, and co-authored, and then effectively sort of a de derivative of the, of the blueprint uh, for an AI Bill of Rights. Um, so the former document was um, one of the kind of only policy documents that we've seen thus far being effectively the only game in town trying to propose a generative AI uh, regulation framework. Um, and it's called Frontier AI Model Regulation. And um, essentially, it defines exactly what David was talking about, that um, the next generation of generative AI technologies could be dual use, and we should be thinking about that. But um, a lot of the ways that um, the companies and co-authors of this document had originally proposed thinking about it were actually um, quite tentative and they were sort of wholesale adopted into now an executive order with force of law. Um, and then we have the other half of the document, which is from the blueprint for an AI Bill of Rights that's talking about, um, you know, making sure that AI is equitable, that it's going to protect civil rights, workers' rights, 
um, uh, pr- like protect people against discrimination, against uh, privacy violations. Um, both of these ideas are good and should be in an executive order. We should be acknowledging the fact that AI is a dual use technology. We should also be acknowledging that we should be centering workers' rights and civil rights and things like that. The issue that I found with the executive order was it sort of just smashed these two things together without actually thinking about also how do there are other technologies within the wide range of AI, the AI spectrum that's not generative AI, that's also dual use. And generative AI also should be developed in ways that protect civil rights, workers' rights, uh, pr- protect Americans from discrimination and uh, privacy violations. And yet, those conversations were completely disconnected. It was as if generative AI is the only form of dual use in AI technologies. And it was as if um, these other types of technologies sort of are the only ones we should care about when thinking about things like privacy and discrimination concerns. Um, And I think it was a good start in recognizing at the very least that there is a huge breadth of AI technologies that we need to be thinking about, that we need to be developing a regulatory framework for, but it didn't actually have a coherent thesis around how to approach all, all the ranges of AI technologies in the same kind of ways we shouldn't actually be breaking these two things into different buckets and treating them in different ways. It should actually be uniform. So I guess I, I fall into the third group, which is even <laughs> more skeptical than Karen. Um, um, uh, because when, when I look at it, there are a bunch of things that struck me. Uh, the, the critique that Karen brings up uh, seems a reasonable critique. Um, uh, but, the, but there are multiple tiers. A lot of this is going to require congressional action, which is not actually going to come. A bunch of this requires companies to act in good faith, which they're not actually going to do. A bunch of it, as David pointed out, requires essentially multilateral international agreements because if the U.S. writes the laws one way, other places are going to actually try to attract people by having laxer laws. We've seen that over and and over again. Part of it that I have a problem with is that some of the terms involved, uh, like frontier AI, are terms that have been made up to describe what we don't know. So, for, you know, frontier AI is everything that's just beyond now that could be really dangerous. Um, and and finally, I, you know, and I think this is my biggest critique of things like this more broadly, is that it tends to say, well, let's regulate AI the way we would have regulated the internet. Um, and AI is something different because it changes everything. It's more like the industrial revolution than the internet. And it would be like at the beginning of the industrial revolution to say, well, a lot of these steam engines are blowing up. Let's focus on regulating steam engines and not addressing climate change or the fact that it's going to change us from an agrarian to an industrial economy. And as a result, we're going to have a civil war. You know, So we, we kind of miss the big picture while we're focusing on the smaller picture. So David, maybe you want to react to some of that. Well, first of all, it was, Karen's absolutely right. It's a mishmash of a document. And that's because this is a White House that has many different constituencies, right? So you've got labor constituencies that are concerned, as you've seen in the auto negotiations, that AI uh, applications don't kill off shops. You've also seen it in the Hollywood strike, right? Um, you have uh, 
civil rights concerns. You have concerns that uh, a program might not um, allocate access to medical care uh, in a fair way and that there would be uh, racial or ethnic preferences. So they were trying to do an awful lot. And, you know, my own view would have been it's the White House focus on the national security stuff, which the president can do by executive order. He can use the Defense Production Act as they did for the sections that I described. And, you know, everything else was kind of aspirational. It was kind of like Congress should act on this. We need to set a standard that other countries can match. It's valuable, I think, you know, since they were sending Vice President Harris off uh, by midweek to this conference in London. It was good that she showed up with something in her briefcase other than showing up with nothing and having the Europeans sort of hijack this with what they thought was the right regulatory um, form. So I think a good deal of it you can ignore. Um, what worries me is my standard worry about executive orders, which is the next executive can undo them, right? I mean, Bill Clinton at the end of his presidency signed a whole bunch of environmental executive orders and created some um, national recreation areas. And they didn't even get the signs up before George W. Bush revoked them. So I I would have some concern uh, along those lines. But on the core national security issue, which I think is the most important thing that we act on quickly, I thought it was did a very good job of staking out a claim and saying this is an area where from the start the US government is going to have to have a role. Karen. Yeah, I it's interesting. I um I thought that the the White House the the executive order actually on ter- in terms of national security issues was the most underdeveloped, even though it was the most detailed section, which made it seem the most developed. Um, it basically just copied the document frontier AI regulation from um, companies fr- from just a few months ago. Um, and so to me, that sort of suggested it, the White House really has not thought about these things. So it, it, it was concerning to me that they would then plop all of that with such granular detail into this executive order. For example, um, there's this stipulation that they have where they say that uh, frontier AI models or what they call dual use foundation models um, should have some kind of, there should be like a, a threshold, a computational threshold where any model trained above 10 to the the 26, um, <laughs> whatever that means, you know, it's sort of hard to even uh, grasp that number, but they say like beyond that threshold, there should be reporting requirements. There should be uh, requirements for cloud computing companies to alert the U.S. government um, about the activity that's happening on their servers. All of these are conceptually um, like ideas that we should really be thinking about and debating. But the 10 to the 26th threshold that was just plucked from this policy document, which, by the way, the policy document like was musing. It says it says in the document, like, let's just say 10 to the 26 might be a threshold we might want to think about. And then suddenly it's in the executive order. 
Um, and, and like a lot of AI experts that I've been recently speaking to are like, where did this number come from? And why are we using this number? It's like a completely arbitrary threshold. Um, there are many types of technologies that if we want to think about like national security and dual use that are well below this threshold. And maybe if we want to be talking about like uh, companies reporting their efforts to the U.S. government, development efforts to the U.S. government, or cloud companies reporting to the U.S. government, that that, that it sh- shouldn't actually be based on a computational threshold. It should be based on maybe like other features of the AI system. What is it actually being designed to do rather than just simply how big it is? Um, and so this, to me, the fact that the executive order kind of takes some of these very, very detailed uh, recommendations um, means that it hasn't actually thought through or thought about how it's actually going to approach this challenge of dual use and the challenge of um, AI to national security. Um, and it's concerning to me that, that now, like, there, I mean, hopefully we get some kind of um, some flexibility in in that like random threshold that they put in there and that there will be more thinking, there will be more refinement over time. And even the executive order acknowledges like we will continue to review these thresholds and things like that and update it. Um, but it was just, it feels very rushed that, you know, just months ago we saw this document with like a random musing about this threshold and now it's in this executive order. And now the vice president is um, in the UK like delivering these speeches saying that this is the US position. I mean, it just it just feels very very half baked. Karen, I I think, but couldn't take this to the bank. That the reason they said that is that no current generative AI large language model, you know, operates putting together that kind of speed. And so this was their way of assuring that it would be for future models, but not applied it to what's out already. Well, that gets you know that gets to one of the problems some people have with uh, all of this, David, and that is that you know a lot of this comes from conversations that have been driven by four companies essentially, right? Google, DeepMind, um, OpenAI, Anthropic, and uh, Meta. And um, you know, first of all, I just have an instinct when you know the companies come along and say, "Please regulate me." I immediately think there's a scam going on, and I don't know what that scam is. But one of the possible scams is that they say regulate the stuff in the future, which will allow us to dominate the stuff now, um, which they dominate. Um, to, to talk to me a little bit, um, each of you, but start with David, about your concerns that there are, you know, certain people big footing this debate at the moment? Well, I think one of the reasons that they're probably doing this is liability, that if the government is out setting the regulation and that you can show that you met the regulation, it's a defense if this is used in some way that it shouldn't be. It moves that off to the government. The second is the recognition there was going to be regulation anyway, so they'd rather it come from the United States where they figured they probably had more influence over what it goes and looks like than uh, if the Europeans do it where their influence is demonstrated to be pretty poor uh, along the way. So those were my two immediate reads uh, of what it was. But no, no, Karen probably has better ones. I, I definitely I, I would agree with both of you that I think it's I think it's both. I think there is. Um, to give the companies benefit of the doubt, I do think that there are a lot of people at these companies that do care deeply about getting this technology right in a way that is 
based on their assessments of what the harms are of this technology. Um, I also think that it conveniently helps to focus on focus the attention away from other things that maybe directly conflict with their business model. But I actually, I, I do think that there is a lot of like one in the same here that come these, the people that choose to be at these companies and develop these technologies at this pace and at this scale have a particular ideology around what the harms of AI are that also they would not participate in a business model to exacerbate um, like they, they they wouldn't participate in a company that exacerbates harms that they believe in. They would participate in a company that they think is trying to avoid the harms that they believe in, you know? So, that, so there is a sincerity and also it is a convenient um, offensive mechanism to ward off regulations that would undermine their bottom line. Yeah. That tends not to, you know, companies tend to focus on their bottom line. Um, uh, there's also, you know, another thing underlying all of this, which is the incredible ignorance of these issues by the policymakers who are supposed to be making the top level decisions. Uh, this was illustrated to some of us, um, uh, you know, yesterday, for example, where you have Rishi Sunak, um, a man who just barely has grasped running the British government, uh, having a conversation with Elon Musk. And, you know, listening credulously, as, as, you know, Elon Musk would say, and AI will make everybody's life better and we will all get richer. And it's like, really? Is that, is that do we know that, Elon? You know, because we don't know that. We, you know, AI could just as easily produce hugely more inequality in the world. It is projected to eliminate 10% of certain kinds of jobs. It may create new ones. It may not. It may make it so that people with lower qualifications who can then get paid less can do those jobs with the assistance of AI. We don't know. And and and, and the political leaders um, don't know. And another manifestation of this is on the first day of the AI safety conference in the UK this week, they all signed something called the Bletchley De- Declaration. Um, and the Bletchley Declaration essentially said, you know, 28 countries sign on uh, to say that uh, frontier technologies are dangerous, which, you know, I mean, you know, this to me... Really helpful. Yeah, no, it sort of captures in a nutshell the whole thing, which is AI is real important. It could be real dangerous. We're against it being dangerous. Let's agree to that you know, as opposed to any kind of substance, David. You're absolutely right. And, you know, this is the problem of summit meetings um, where here you had three problems. Number one, you had a summit meeting in which most countries had barely, like, figured out their own policies at home. Summits are usually useful once you all have developed policies and you are then trying to negotiate among them. Uh, The second is, as you suggested, you gathered a bunch of people who were basically prepared to deal with this at the highest possible level. And, um, you know, then having people like Elon Musk, you know, cruising in made you wonder who were the state actors here and who were the non-state actors. I mean, we're only a few months out from uh, when we discovered that Elon Musk had um, declared that, uh, that Ukraine couldn't use Starlink to launch certain kinds of attacks 
because he had adopted for himself a kind of decision-making role that normally would be taken on by a secretary of defense or a national security advisor. Um, so, uh, so that's the second level. And I think the third level that we've got is, as you point out, there is a degree of technical um, uh, base knowledge you would need here in order to do this. Governments have negotiated past that before. Again, think back to the nuclear age or think to chemical or biological weapons or other things that we have regulated. But we're nowhere near the ability to go do that yet. Karen, I see you nodding with David. It's, I really wanted fierce confrontation, but maybe you agree with me. <laughs> I, I um, very much agree with David's last point on um there's like a really, really dire uh, capacity shortage within governments around the world right now to regulate this technology in terms of actually understanding it. And this is part of the reason why we are seeing documents coming out with wholesale copying of um, of like previous documents from companies, because as you mentioned, David, there are four companies now that are really developing this technology. And they not only have a monopoly on the technology development, they also have a monopoly on the talent for understanding this technology. Because over the years, these companies have set their salaries to like the average salary at OpenAI is, um, or the average compensation package is around a million dollars. And <laughs> there are no universities that are going to compete with that. There are no other independent nonprofits. There are no governments that are going to compete with that. So all of the brightest minds that are thinking about AI technology development are ending up at the very companies that are doing the thing. And therefore, you don't have anyone elsewhere that's doing independent research to critique what um, the claims the companies make that are thinking about alternative regulation strategies to the ones that the companies propose. Um, and so we end up, I mean, I, I keep talking about how the, like this, like these figures in the executive order were copied over, but there are many other traces of within the executive order, this phenomenon of, um, the government clearly like heavily leaning on and listening to companies. For example, it talks about how AI, um, in the context of the environment could be a really powerful tool for improving energy efficiency and achieving a renewable energy transition because it could help us develop better battery technology. It could help us develop um, alternative energy um, sources, all of which is true. And yet it misses a huge part of the equation, which is that AI itself has become so massively energy intensive, resource intensive, that it itself is at risk of exacerbating climate change and other environmental issues. And that is a huge company talking point. The companies often talk about AI as the tool for getting to a world where we stabilize the climate without ever acknowledging that it is also the tool that is currently exacerbating the very problem. So um, there are like many, many fingerprints all over these policy documents, these government documents that show this kind of real talent capacity shortage that is long-term very concerning. I think the, the I guess like the optimistic um, kind of end note <laughs> is that 
the Biden administration also acknowledged that, and many governments are acknowledging that they they know that they are ha- they have this problem, and so a huge part of the executive order was also saying we're going to surge talent capacity, surge our technical knowledge capacity, and try to hire as many people um, across the agencies as possible that actually have the know how to start being able to counter the companies rather than just lean on them. But the question is whether or not the talent will actually move um, to these government positions. David, two quick things. As one of the good things in the program, in the executive order, um, H-1B visas uh, for people with these talents. I mean, when was the last time you saw any order that actually would increase some immigration of uh, of this kind of talent. So that was good. Let me, let me just interject uh, there, by the way. I think it was in your, one of your articles that I've read recently, Karen, that you noted that something like 31% of the people who are working in AI had their undergraduate educations in China. Um, yeah. And, uh, which I think that's right. So, so this is, this is one of those cases where we are hyper dependent on, on, on st- student exchange with the country that's also kind of seen as a potential yeah. adversary. Yeah, I, I was talking with um, Suresh Venkatra Subramanian, who is a professor at Brown, who was um, at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, co-author of the AI uh, Bill of Rights, who <laughs> he teaches computer science at Brown. And I was asking him about this. I was like, what, what do you think about this immigration thing? Because as as you said, David, it's the first time that we're really seeing this. And it is a remarkable shift in kind of the typical tone that we see around immigration. Um, and to me, I thought it was, I was like, hmm, I wonder how this is going to play out because, you know, yeah, exactly. Like the, the huge, <laughs> the biggest source of talent is from China and clearly the U S and China are not getting along these days. And Suresh also was like, yeah, you know, in my department, like all of the PhD students are foreign and all of the foreigners are from countries that the U S is not friends with. <laughs> That's just the reality. Well, computer science makes a makes a good argument. You know, as we often, David, uh, in other shows, we have talked about how if you're going to get your training in some in the United States, who want to keep you around for a while. Of course, there will be a counterintelligence, you know, element to this that will will play up. Um, I think another good thing is there were some challenge grants out there for um, smaller businesses, smaller universities, and this is a big problem because. Um, right now, it is so expensive to put together large language models that basically only those five companies you named, David, have the capital to go do it. And, you know, Harvard, Stanford, and MIT would all be strained to go spend the kind of money that would be required here. And they're at the very, you know, high end of the endowment index here. So um, a little bit hard to imagine how they're going to do this without degrees of funding that are way beyond anything we're conceiving right now. Yeah, and that goes to the point that Karen was making earlier, and I just I don't want to assume too much knowledge on the part of the listener, but uh, the big gating issue here is computational power, and computational power requires a lot of these very expensive chips. The NVIDIA chip is thirty or $40,000, um, but it requires then a lot of energy. It requires a lot of water to cool it. That You know, you just, it, it's not something where everybody can go and, you know, put one on their desk. And um, it does give these big companies and first movers a big advantage. It also gives a bunch of other actors out there potential advantage. Uh, there are a couple of Gulf countries that have just bought up 
hundreds of these NVIDIA chips. They have unlimited amount of energy. They have unlimited amount of money. And they say, well, hey, you know, we don't have a lot of people, but if we have, you know, this kind of AI computing power, maybe we can up our game and rise up in the sort of the geopolitical league tables uh, using this kind of capacity. And so, you know, that's another dimension of it. Um, but I, I could go on and on. And in fact, I'd like to go on and on. And I hope I can invite you guys back because this is my favorite conversation. It's, my, it's the subject that I find the most interesting. But let me just pose one last question, just in a purely practical matter. Uh, we did a show um, recently with the folks from Freedom House who just did a, a study on AI and disinformation and AI and censorship um, around the world. Um, and one of the problems with that, and I think it extends to a number of other areas, is there's already an ideological divide on how we view these things. So, for example, if you say disinformation to a Republican, they think, oh, that's what we were called when we were saying that COVID wasn't real, and therefore we're against it. And so they intuitively block things that they, uh, that are, that are, that are, you know, charged with regulating uh, disinformation. Um, and so there, there, it is, you know, next year we're going into election. Everybody knows that there's going to be a lot more AI powered disinformation, uh, uh, coming up into the, into the election sort of ecosystem. And there is no money funded for it. There is, you know, we, we, we are totally unprepared for it because there is this ideological divide on these issues. And I'm just wondering first, Karen, and then David, uh, for last word here, what do you think about the politics behind all this? That's a great question because, you know, <laughs> we're polarized even on misinformation itself. I mean, the thing, I think the thing that I'll say is this, I am actually, um, the way that people typically talk about their concerns around AI power disinformation when it comes to something like the US presidential election, um, I think is actually fixated on the wrong problem. I don't actually think we're going to get a deep fake of Biden or Trump that large swaths of people will suddenly fall for for a long period of time. Maybe there will be like a moment in time when certain groups of people will then fall for this. But there is so much um, capacity in media um, like there's so there's so that we have so many institutions and journalistic ones in particular that are following the presidential election, following presidential candidates very rigorously. So there's the distribution of real verified information and then deep fakes is going to ultimately balance out towards the the real and verified uh, piece of it. What I'm worried about is actually when deepfakes will be used to target specific communities locally for local elections where the we've completely lost all local newspaper capacity to actually counteract and and provide real information and also communities that don't speak english primarily like spanish language disinformation um, there was a really good BuzzFeed article a few years ago now. So this has been an ongoing problem around like Vietnamese language misinformation, where there are these languages that are huge parts of the U.S. political, where where a lot of U.S. political discourse happens, where there is no capacity whatsoever to counteract this kind of stuff. So to me, I guess the politics of this stuff, where 
the dangers really emerge is the fact that um, so much of politics now plays out at the local and community-based level where we have absolutely no visibility into it and there are no journalists or no other um, fact makers, fact checkers on the ground to counteract this stuff. That's an excellent point um, and worthy of some for further ex- exploration as well. I would note that apparently a number of sort of AI-enhanced um, uh, images have come out of, of Gaza. And this has sort of yes. colored how people look at all of the images that are coming out of Gaza. Absolutely. This has been, uh, and so it, it's a, it's an early sign of what's to come. It's actually remarkable that war didn't come out of Ukraine, but given the charges around Gaza, it shouldn't surprise us that this has become, you know, already a, a global disinformation war. And, you know, Karen's point about local reporting is, is right. A lot, you've seen a lot of Chinese and Russian, uh, disinformation specialists realize that if you don't do this stuff in English, that you do it in, you know, more, uh, targeted at specific communities, the chances that you're going to get caught or countered are probably lower. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 um, it's 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 a big issue, and there's no New York Times there to be the referee because we don't have. And, to- and you know, there are some communities. I hate to say this as a um, four decade long uh, employee of the New York Times, uh, but you named some before where uh, even if the New York Times tried to be the referee, and I don't think <laughs> we often do. I, I'm not sure that would work out quite, you know, uh, the way one would hope because you know if you've got some Republicans saying there is no such thing as um, a disinformation policy here that isn't biased against them. It's going to be a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely right. Listen, you guys are super smart, super fun to talk to. I think this is a great subject uh, for us to continue the conversation, and we will do everything in our power to lure you back to continue this. David, of course, you know, we we rely on seeing you uh, pretty frequently on other issues as well. But I just think we need more conversation on AI, um, uh, and I and I think we need to challenge some of the ways these are approached. I, I'll just conclude by saying, when I look at this, and it goes back to this industrial revolution analogy, if you go and take this and treat it like it's a new technological development, you are approaching it too narrowly. And this is the kind of thing where an executive order is a good start. But the only real way to do it is whole of government. You've got to actually get each agency to look at the implications. Because at the Department of Labor, there's an issue about jobs and job creation. And at the IRS, there's a different issue. And at Commerce, there's a different issue and so forth. Uh, And you can't do it one nation at a time because this is a global economy and this is something where it's all electrons and can so easily move from point A to point B that most kinds of export controls just simply don't work. It's not a five-axis machine that is manufactured in one plant in Holland. You know, it's 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 much more difficult. So uh, I think we need to keep having these conversations, and uh, hopefully you'll agree that we can have them again with you. Thank you very much, Karen. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, everybody, for listening. There'll be more of this again real soon. Until then, bye-bye.